Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The best in the world podcast with Richard Parr. I think the key word of this week's episode is opportunity. I think that is certainly the theme with this week's conversation with the Olympic snowboarding champion from 2002, Kelly Clark. Yes, the American is this week's guest on The Best in the World with Richard Parr. Hello, I am Richard. It's lovely to speak to you once again on this program where we speak to Olympic champions, world champions, world record holders and world number ones to find out what they do differently from me and you, unless you're an Olympic champion, to find out what they do differently from the rest of us to become the very best in their sports, the very best in their fields. While you might not be a sports star or an athlete, there are lessons that can be learned from these amazing people that we can use in our everyday lives. Really fun chat with Kelly on the program. Of course, she was a gold medalist in 2002 in the half pipe. She then came fourth four years later in 2006. And then in the following two games in 2010 and 2014, she managed to get bronze medals. And in this conversation, she tells me why she almost values her bronze medals more than she does her gold medal. Do I understand exactly why you're going to have to listen to the full conversation? We talk about a lot of different things. Of course, her daily routine. That's something which we ask a lot of the guests. And it's really interesting when she explains her recovery routine. I was quite interested in the process and the amount of time involved when it comes to recovery. We talk about coping with injuries. We talk about how life is a journey and with that also goal setting as well. All of that is in today's podcast. She also recommends her favorite book. And you know what? If you enjoy books, perhaps you might also want to listen to books as well. And you can do that using Audible. Audible is one of the leading suppliers of audiobooks in the world. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash best and you can get a free trial of their service for 30 days and that includes one free audiobook download. I'm just finishing up with Mastery by Robert Green. I'm really enjoying that book. So if you want to check it out, you can check that out for free by signing up to Audible. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash best. All right, let's start the conversation with the Olympic snowboarding champion, Kelly Clark. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. 
Kelly Clark, Olympic snowboarding champion from 2002. Welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Parr. Now, I start these podcasts differently depending on the guest. Sometimes I like to start with kind of the early years and how people first got into their sport. Sometimes I like to catch up with what they're up to now. But because we like to talk about rituals and how people go into just before they're in their competition and their, their pre-competition ritual. The one thing which immediately stood out when it came to to you, Kelly, was about your ritual of singing at the top of the pipe before competing. How did that help you? And what songs were you singing there, Kelly? Um, Yeah, it's, I mean, gosh, it's been something I've done since I was a kid when I first started competing. And I think initially it was just to take my mind off of the... Um, the expectation and the pressure of the situation, you know, that, that competition brings, um, it was just kind of a way for me to tune everything out. And, and honestly, um, there's no like rhyme or rhythm to it, no pun intended, um, for, you know, what song I listen to or what artist, or it, it literally changes every time. But, um, you know, I guess as an athlete, there's so many things that fight for our attention. Um, you know, what the announcer is saying and, um, what people want to talk to you about that day. And, and it kind of just helps me control the environment that I'm in and helps me focus on the task at hand is, is really what it comes down to. Mm. Can you tell us any of the songs you'd sing? Um, honestly, a bunch of different songs. It can be anything from Taylor Swift to Hillsong. So <laughs> it's uh, just a big, it's a big gamut. I, I find, you know, if, I'm, if the, the one kind of, thing that it does is if I'm intense, if I'm nervous that day, I listen to something real mellow. If I'm tired and feeling sluggish, I listen to something upbeat. So that's, that's kind of the only rules that it has. <laughs> <laughs> well, what other things would you do so that you could turn all of that kind of outside noise off? Um, You know, you can never really lose your focus. You can just focus on the wrong thing at the wrong time. Mm. Um, if I'm going to drop in and I'm thinking about what I ate for breakfast or that my boot is loose, you know, it's, uh, that's, that's where things go wrong. So it, it's really just pushing everything out to be able to focus on the task at hand. And, um, it, it actually really comes down to the preparation. You know, I've, I've learned from my Olympic experiences that, um, if you don't have it by the time it's contest day, if you don't have it together, by the time the Olympics come around, you're not going to get it that day. Uh, you really rely on your preparation and push everything else to the sidelines that day to, perform your best mm. so maybe give us an idea of what your kind of morning and, and day is like on the day of a, a big competition are there certain foods that you eat are there, are there certain things that you do do you do some kind of stretching do you even do things like put on a certain boot on first like the left or the right or other things which have become habit really um I, i've never been a superstitious person but uh there's things that you know, can simplify your mornings of the contest. Um, I, I definitely lay out everything the night before I pack my, my bag for the hill. I lay out my, um, my outerwear, my gear, my, all my stuff that I need for the day. Um, and coffee is the first order of business for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I, I usually eat a pretty big breakfast. It's, um, you know, pretty essential that we stay refueled throughout the day. So, you know, I'm constantly snacking, but starting off the day, um, with a good meal is, is key. And, you know, I find sometimes we have night finals and events that don't go on till the afternoon. And, um, I find that those competition days are actually the most difficult because you spend the whole day waiting for it to happen. 
Um, I much prefer being able to get up and just go get to it. Um, that's, that's a lot easier than having to wait, you know, something like the X games where we compete, you know, at 9 PM, you're just kind of sitting around all day waiting for the contest to happen. Um, that's, that could be a little tricky to manage. Ready just to tackle the day. So uh, what is in your diet, Kelly? What, what nutrition do you have? What would you typically have on, on a training day, for example? Um, I'm a big fan of eggs, so that's kind of how I start off my day, and um, eggs wouldn't really be complete without a piece of bacon. Um, <laughs> and for me, everything's kind of in, in moderation. So, you know, if I have bacon in the mornings, I have one piece. You know, I'm not talking four or five pieces. <laughs> um, you know, it's okay to have, you know, all the good parts, um, but you can, you can do it in moderation, which I think is key. Um, I juice every day as well. I think my lifestyle and traveling and um, how much I have to fit into every day, you know, I don't always get all the nutrition that I need through my food. So I, I definitely supplement between vitamins and um, juice is a, is a good way for me to get in extra veggies and a few fruits in there. Um, and then every uh, every day I probably actually have two smoothies um, just to kind of get me in between meals and in between workouts. Um, they're just a good, they're kind of my go-to snack. If I need a snack, I make a smoothie. Oh, um, and that's peanut butter, fruit, uh, frozen fruit, usually a banana, um, protein powder. If I need it that day, maybe some milk, maybe some yogurt. Uh, but the peanut butter is actually key. It kind of makes any smoothie good and puts a little protein and a little fat in there, which is, which is good too. And tastes good as well. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. And you mentioned the traveling. Do you enjoy that aspect of what you do? Um, I do. I I mean, I love what I, I mean, not a lot of people get to do what they love for a living and I'm privileged enough to do that. And at the same time, I get to see the world and meet people from all over the place. Um, You know, I've been, I've been traveling and competing professionally. I think this was my, my 18th consecutive winter X games this year. So, you know, I've got, I've got almost 20 years under my belt that I've been traveling the world since I was a kid and, and gotten to do and, and see so many amazing places. But, um, you know, I, I love that aspect of my job, but I, I don't think that I'd want to do it forever. Um, you know, I just hit what's the million mile, million mile flying club about two or three years ago. So I spent a lot of my time on planes and traveling and it's, and it's awesome, but you know, I'll be glad when my lifestyle kind of slows down too. Do you have a, do you have a flight routine, Kelly? Is there a certain, are you a reader or are you listen to music? Are you movie or can you sleep? Um, you know, honestly, I, I don't know what it is. Maybe when I was a kid, maybe my parents put me in, um, in the car to go to sleep or something. But as soon as the engines turn on, uh, in the plane, I like my eyes start to water and they get real heavy and I literally fall asleep as soon as the engines get going. Um, and I guess, you know, I, I like, I actually really look forward to plane rides because there's so much, we have access to so many things through our phone, um, and so many responsibilities, whether it be email or text messages and communicating. And I love planes because I don't have to do any of that. <laughs> I can sit on the plane and I, I never, ever get Wi-Fi. I would, I would, that would be like my worst nightmare if I got Wi-Fi on the plane because I love the timeout that I get. I'm completely with you there. And even though more and more flights are offering 
the in-flight Wi-Fi. I, I've never connected because I never want to. And, and also, I love going to the cinema because I love it when they say, please switch off your phones because then you you just completely mm-hmm. cut yourself off from the world and just immerse yourself in the movie. It's, it, it's quite good fun. Oh, it's so nice. Yeah, I do love a good movie on the long-haul flights as well. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite movie, Kelly, while we're on that? Oh, favorite movie? Um, you know, all-time favorite movie is Rudy. Have you ever seen that movie? No, I haven't. It's a American football movie, and it's just like a class, like the most classic underdog story um, of this guy who um, has a dream of going to Notre Dame to play football, and he's uh, what do they call him in the movie? Five foot, uh, five foot nothing, a hundred and nothing, and hardly have a shred of athletic talent. And um, he's just the ultimate. It's a true story of just the ultimate underdog, which I appreciate as a sports um, uh, fan and. Uh, as an athlete myself. Oh, well, I'll have to check it out. I know the other guests I've had on this program, they've resonated with sports movies and, and underdog movies, and I, I think it it almost helps inspire. And I, I've seen that you're a reader as well. Are there any particular books you'd recommend anyone? Um, I, I do like to read. Um, I would say my favorite sports autobiography is probably the Andre Agassi uh, Open that book is um, probably my, my favorite sports autobiography. Um, he's just so real and honest. And I love when, when athletes get kind of de-glamorized. Um, you know, I always say it's like I trained four years for a 30-second halfpipe run. Um, but there's so much that goes into those, those 30 seconds. And I love when we really get a chance to see that part of the athlete's life. Yeah, and that's what we try to do on this podcast as well, just give our listeners a little glimpse of what goes into all of that hard work. Tell us um, what a typical training day would be like for you, Kelly. Like, just How how many hours are you putting in and and how much of it is actually on the slopes? Is there any in the gym? Is there any almost sitting down, reviewing tapes, anything like that? Well, yeah, it's... It's kind of interesting. Um, I moved to a new city a few years ago and my friends started, I started making friends and they started to learn what I did. And, and it was kind of um, mind blowing that there wasn't really anything I could do to practice my sport when I wasn't on snow. Um, and as we all know, snow doesn't happen year round. We do do a pretty good job of chasing the snow around the globe, but there's, you know, months at a time where I literally have nothing to do with a snowboard where I have to, you know, I can't shoot free throws or um, work on my golf swing, things like that. It's, it's just not possible. So I do a lot of um, fitness conditioning um, and the lead up to the Olympic season, like this next winter, um, the amount of time that I spend getting ready, because I, I like to um, really focus on that preparation to make sure I set myself up to be as successful as I can once I get back on snow. Um, I remember last Olympic cycle, it was about about 24 to 26 hours a week of training time, and that's split up between, um, I spent a lot of time on my road bike, I have two strength days a week, two agility days, four days of core, uh, four days of mobility, and three days of cardio, so they all kind of overlap, um, but you know, yesterday I, I did an agility day, ran stairs, and then went on a bike ride, just for an example, so um these years get pretty intense with the with the training, and then when, when I'm on snow, the on snow camps, um, because I actually because I am an older athlete, um, I tend to train smarter, not harder, mm. and it's um, it's 
really, you know, I don't spend as much time on the snow uh, as I used to. So I'm taking about, you know, 10 runs a day, um, but that's combined with the warm up and then 10 runs a day and then the cool down, the recovery stuff at the gym, watching, um, watching video of the practice is key for us. We go through what we did well and what we didn't do well to head into the next day and then physical therapy if I need anything. So my days are just when I'm at training camp, they just start and they finish before I even know what happens. There's so much packed into there. Well, what is recovery like for you, Kelly? What's involved there? Um, it's pretty much always on the spin bike to start. Um, and we'll do little, uh, intervals, you know, five seconds on 55 seconds off, five seconds on 55 seconds off, um, about 10 times to kind of flush our muscles out. Um, if I can get into an ice bath, I do that. Any opportunity I get, um, where I'll do a minute in the hot minute in the cold ending on cold. Most people like to end on the hot, (laughs) but ending on the cold will give you a little bit, um, better results for that. Um, and then it's mobility, stretching, foam rolling is key. Um, about an hour, hour and a half, typically on a snow day for me. Oh, wow. That's, that's a lot of recovery. And yeah, no, interesting. Um, you mentioned about, um, working smarter, not harder. Now you have been very innovative throughout your career. The first woman to do a 1080 in competition. Are you still trying to push the barriers now or is, or is it a little bit less these days? Um, you know, I always have the same approach. Uh, ever since I can remember, my plan has really been to go for it um, and to take advantage of those opportunities. And I think focusing on my fitness and on my conditioning enables me to still go for it. You know, I think we look at we look at snowboarders and we can say they're risk takers, but I think the reality is is we're calculated risk takers. Um, and that's still what I have. I have the calculated approach where I where I err on the side of getting as prepared and as strong as I can be, so I can continue to take those calculated risks and push push it to the uh, edge of what I'm capable of. And um, you know, I hope to. I, I'm aware that I'm getting towards the end of my career. This will be my fifth Olympic team if I make it. Um, this next winter and and I I definitely still have trick goals and things that I want to learn so I'm not in safety cruise mode by any means Um, I'm hoping for the opportunity to to get to make another Olympic team Um, and then you know every time I go to the Olympics the plan is to go for it and and it's it's worked out for me and it hasn't worked out for me Um, but I always have the same exact plan is to go for it because if you're ever going to go for it it's uh, the Olympics are the place to do it yeah and of course it really did work out for you back in 2002 just tell us about that whole first olympic experience kelly um i mean gosh it's pretty overwhelming you don't realize how big the olympic games are until you go there and that that happened to be my host country in the u.s you know Mm. um there was so much excitement and um being in the u.s it was actually only five months um post 9-11 as well and so um, security was beyond tight. Um, but at the same time, I think everybody, the world kind of wanted to rally around good news for a change. There had been a lot of turmoil going on, um, in the past few months leading up to the games. And, uh, you know, from a competitive standpoint, you know, I always say being a rookie is easy. Um, you have no expectation, you have no idea of what you're getting into. And it's almost, it's the easiest to go through when you, um, you don't know what you're getting into (laughs) and you have zero expectations. So it was overwhelming, but at the same time, um, I had my breakout season that year and I was able to, 
to perform at the highest level. Um, and, you know, seeing the, the, hearing the national anthem and seeing the flag go up in the flowers, uh, in the medal ceremony that night after I won was one of the most overwhelming and incredible experiences in my life. Mm. And of course, when you won, you were 18 years old. Uh, what an amazing achievement to have at the age of 18, doing something which probably people 10 years, 15 years older would, would love to achieve and probably are still working towards achieving. When it happened, was there almost a question of, I've done this, what next? Or was it more of the, I want more of this, I I, I would like to continue winning? How, how was that that emotion those first say few weeks months afterwards um the, the first few weeks and months were honestly still so hectic and so busy um travel pr you know different things like that were 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 i was extremely busy post 2002 um but you know once that all started to settle down um like like you mentioned you know not that many people get to be in those shoes um people work their whole lives and never never get an opportunity to stand on top of the Olympic podium, um, much less the top of the Olympic podium, you know. And uh, I guess I had an idea that when you are successful, it kind of goes hand in hand with being fulfilled. And I guess I had poured myself into the sport. And I, I love snowboarding. I loved snowboarding. I still love snowboarding. But I think I was really looking to my performance to really define me and give me kind of a sense of significance. And, um, you know, the few years post 2002, I really had to um, grow up and develop a sense of identity apart from what I did. I think it's so easy, whether you're an athlete, um, you know, whether you're a mom, whether you're you're in business world, to, to really look to how you perform to really get... Um, that sense of identity and have that define you, you know, if, imagine if I was defined by if I did or did not do well at a contest, that's, that's kind of what I was using snowboarding for. And so it really um, caused me to really evaluate that post 2002. And, and I think, you know, if you don't, if you don't go on that journey and if you don't figure out how to separate your identity and, and figure out, you know, what makes you happy outside of what you do, what you do becomes not very fun. You know, and I think snowboarding, I could have burned out on snowboarding if I didn't go on that that journey of just figuring out, um, you know, who I was. And and it was a really healthy thing for me to do because, you know, snowboarding post-2002 really became something that I had to do. And until I figured that out, it wasn't something I got to do. And now I think having a good sense of of who I am, I think, has really given me a long career um, it's made my career sustainable and it's made my career enjoyable. You know, it's not something I, I have to do. It's something I get to do. Mm. Um, and, um, it was, it was healthy, but you know, I, I guess I, I had to get to the top to realize that, that what I was looking for wasn't there. Not a lot of people get that perspective, but that was kind of my journey. Um, and I was thankful for that experience and then kind of got to grow up and develop as a person outside of my snowboarding. And then, um, I really got to snowboard and, and it really kind of just gave me that, that passion and that, um, uh, that enjoyment again. Mm. 15 years later, you're, you're still competing. So it, it really has worked for you. That's fantastic. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. We've got more from Kelly in just a moment, but I wanted to remind you that Best in the World with Richard Parr is part of the Sportachino network. Go to sportachino.com for all things related to sports, as well as this podcast. They also do a wrestling show, which I am the host of. Plus, in August, we'll be returning with our football program on a Monday and a Friday. You won't want to miss that. Lots more updates on the future of Sportachino can be found on our Twitter page at Sportachino. If you don't know how to spell it, it's S-P-O-R-T-U-C-C-I-N-O. Go and check it out. All right, let's return to the conversation with the Olympic snowboarding champion, Kelly Clark. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Now, on this program, we've spoken to obviously lots of different uh, Olympic champions and for example, silver and bronze medals for them. Some some athletes it's an absolute real success. And then others have said certain medals are disappointments for them because they they had kind of higher goals. Um, one thing that I've read uh, about you is that you, you consider your bronze medals, um, which you, you, you later won in subsequent Olympics, on the same level as the gold medal you won in 2002. Can you just explain what you meant by that? Yeah, I, I actually, um, I value my bronze medals Um actually much more than my gold medal. I wouldn't trade the gold medal. <laughs> I, I, I love that experience and that really shaped me and made me who I am. But, um, you know, one thing I've learned about the Olympics is that you really shouldn't treat them as a destination. Um, they shouldn't be something that define you or define your career as an athlete. They should simply be a, a great addition. You know, I had a conversation with a friend um, post 2010 Olympics in Vancouver and, you know, we, we pour our lives into this into this sport and and for an opportunity to go to the olympics and we had made it and we competed and we got done and my friend came up to me one of my teammates and she said you know are you so glad it's over and i thought what a strange comment you know she was at a real different point in her career than me um but in that moment i realized i was doing it for the right reasons it wasn't something like i was trying to survive it was something that i was really enjoying doing for the right reasons and you know, it's just, <clears throat> it's so easy to treat them as a destination or, or look for them to kind of complete your career. Um, and I think you have to start there. And then at the same time, um, I find that I value things based off of what they cost me. Um, you know, how expensive was it? <laughs> what did it cost you? Um, and like I said, you know, being a rookie is easy. Um, you kind of just go through the motions and I was peaking um, during 2002 and I didn't stumble into it. I, I worked hard, but you know, everything came together and I ended up on top of the podium and um, it was the best, best run I'd ever done in my life, the Olympic games. And, and I walked away with that gold medal, but you know, 
2006 was heartbreak for me. I went for it. I learned there was a big difference between um, having potential and being prepared. <laughs> and um, I was at the edge of my ability level, you know, and I didn't walk away with anything. I walked away with the fourth place um, at that Olympics. And I was able to deal with that disappointment. And then both in Vancouver, um, get back on the Olympic podium as well as Sochi with two bronze medals. And, um, you know, Sochi in particular, that last run, I was the last um, person to go of the entire event that night. Um, I hadn't landed a run in seven tries. I fell every run in practice, first run in the event. I had one run left to do it. Um, and it was, you know, spanning 12 years of an Olympic career. And it was um, one of the greatest performances of my life when I overcame personally that day. And it wasn't my best snowboarding. That's the thing. It wasn't the best snowboarding I've ever done. I know I can snowboard better than that, but for those circumstances and what I personally overcame, it was one of the, the greatest victories in my life um, because of what it cost me, because of how difficult it was, you know, and it's not something that people would see, um, you know, who just watch it on the other side of the television. It's like uh, we, we, we champion, you know, the medal count. We see it flash up on the screen during the Olympics and we say whose country's got the most medals and what colors are the best. But I mean, gosh, it's so much more than just winning things. It was about winning things. I probably should have stopped snowboarding a long time ago. You know, I've had great success in my career, but gosh, I just learned to enjoy the, the process and the journey and, 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 and the daily challenges. You know, I think snowboarding is, is a unique sport because, you know, you're never the best. It's always changing and progressing. And, and if you want to continue to be relevant, you have to change and progress with it and grow. And that's been something I've been able to do well in my career. And it's made me really enjoy, um, you know, some of my, my later quote unquote victories mm -hmm. more so than early on, because, you know, it took me <laughs> 12 years of getting back up again to get back on the podium. Yeah, no, fantastic. There's a couple of things I just want to quickly bring up there. When, when you said about your, your friend saying, Oh, aren't you relieved that, that this is over? Like, and, and, and then you explained your philosophy towards it. How does that work for you then with goal setting? Is that still, you can still be setting goals, but it's just considered as part of the journey. Is is that kind of how you look at it? Or, or do you not kind of set goals and you just go each year, I'm just going to continue enjoying snowboarding and see where it can take me. Um, I set goals. I'm a big goal setter still. Um, but in that context, um, how I measure the success of the goals is where, where it really kind of has changed and developed later on in my career. And, you know, I'm out there setting goals and going after them and hopefully achieving them. Um, but where I really measure my success is in my growth. You know, like I, I think that's what I look to. Um, that's how I define success. So like we can set goals, but meeting them isn't the only benchmark that I measure success by, you know, hopefully I'm going to meet them. But, but if I didn't, hopefully I grew as a person and as an athlete. Okay. And when you were talking about, having that uh, most amazing time in Sochi with your with your final run becoming successful with it was there anything that you were able to do or you did or whether you even know subconsciously or not that you were able to kind of put the earlier failures those like i think you said seven bad runs um behind and not think about them and uh, is there anything you can do to to make you kind of not have them creep into your next run. Do, do, do you understand what I mean? 
Yeah, yeah, there's there's a few things. Well, um because I'm human, I had a good cry. Um that was where <laughs> that was definitely part of that night, you know, in between the 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 practice runs where I fell five times consecutively and um when I started my competition runs, I went down and I saw my sports psych and you know, I went up to her and I said, "Hey, you know what I need to do right now? I need to have a good cry." Um but so we walked around the back of the stadium. Um and I gave it a good cry for about 30 seconds. Um, not just like tears in my eyes, but, you know, a good ugly cry. And, you know, I think the reality is it's okay to get disappointed. You just can't stay there. And I, I wasn't going to stay there that night. I was going to deal with that emotion, move through it. Um, but the biggest thing that I've kind of developed in my career that's really helped me be successful in, in adverse situations like that I that I faced that night Um I have to look at things as an opportunity. Um, if you've ever seen anyone when they're afraid, they're at their worst. And, you know, as athletes, we talk about, you know, what do I, what do I eat in the morning? What do I listen to? What, what's my routine? How, how am I successful? Um, I can't let fear creep in and have a bigger role in decision-making than it needs to, you know, as an athlete. And if you've ever seen anyone when they're afraid, they're at their worst. If you see someone drowning, you know, they try to drown their rescuer because they're so afraid um, and I need to be at my best. And so fear can't really be in the equation for me. And imagine if I looked at how I did um, in a contest and got defined by it and I fell first run or I fell five runs like I did in Sochi. And all of a sudden I'm looking at the end result and I'm, I'm threatened. That's, that's where fear comes in as an athlete where I say, oh, I'm not going to perform as I'm expected or as I set out to do. Um, you can either look at things as a threat or you can look at things as an opportunity. And in the years leading up to Sochi and my different, you know, big performances in my career, um, anytime I had that similar experience, I said, well, what an opportunity this is. If this is what happens in Sochi, I'm going to get ready. Anytime I fell in practice four years prior to, to those Olympic games, anytime I had bad weather, anytime I had, you know, unjust judging, um, or I felt sick. Maybe I was sick. Okay. Well, if I'm sick in, in Sochi, what an opportunity. And so by the time I got to those five runs, you know, where, where things weren't going as planned, um, you know, I was disappointed. I, I got out that emotion and then I said, well, what an opportunity. And I literally went to the top of the pipe and I went to my coaches and they looked at me and I said, Hey, what an opportunity. And they said, we were going to say the exact same thing. You've been getting ready for this. And so it's not always going to go as planned. Things go sideways often on competition day there's there's judges um you know weather there's so many factors that go into it but if you can learn to look at things as an opportunity um you will be able to perform your best um and be your best you at the end of the day and not let your circumstances dictate the choices you made because that's a huge thing as athletes that we want to learn to navigate it's like there's so many things like you know what if what if i i decided to back off and, and not try my hardest run because things were going so poorly that night. I wouldn't have walked away with a medal. I had to stick to my plan and I had to, I had to know what I came there to do regardless of what was going on around me. Uh, and at the very least I was going to go down swinging. Um, and so for me, that's, that's where, you know, I overcame that night and was so proud of my performance was because I knew, you know, that I was able to kind of conquer that thing and say, well, I, I didn't let my circumstances shape the decisions I made. Um, 
I didn't crumble under pressure. I, I rose to the occasion and, and put down a run that was worthy of an Olympic medal. So it's a huge success for me and a huge victory for me that night. And with that mental process, is that something similar that you do for injuries? Like, for example, I know you've been recovering from hip surgery from last year. How, how would you cope with that similar way? Um, yeah, you know, there, there's opportunity in everything. Um, I think with my hip surgery, it was my first major injury of my career. Um, I, I found the best thing to overcome a situation like that was to really trust the process and trust the people around me. Um, you know, I had to believe them, you know, I was, I was in bed for a month. I, I couldn't get out of bed by myself for a month. My feet were tied together. Um, so I wouldn't shear the repair that was done in the cartilage and I wasn't able to sit at 90 degrees. Um, and so it was a pretty immobilizing, limiting thing. I definitely learned that uh, endorphins are a real thing. <laughs> and I was like, why am I just not happy? I'm always just happy. And um, it, was, it was really trying mentally um, as well as physically. Uh, you know, the discipline I know how to do for my athletics. And so the rehab, I could kind of stick to the program. But, you know, I, I took 10 months off snow, um, which was crazy for me. But... Um, I really had to trust the people around me, um, and believe them that, you know, they said I would get better and, and, um, and I did. So it was, it was a, it was a hard experience, but I definitely came out stronger and, um, I'm back now physically to where I was. I'm better than I was before my surgery. So mm, fantastic. And of course you mentioned that you're going for your fifth Olympics. How, how do you feel, uh, leading up with what, what are we, we're, we're June, yeah, May, June now. Um, obviously, it's the start of next year. How do you feel your preparations are going? Um, you know, the biggest question mark was was my kind of physical ability that I needed to get back um, post-surgery. And I'm about 14 months post-surgery right now. And um, I won the, uh, the test event in Korea this year. Um, I'm in kind of like peak form with my snowboarding. And physically, uh, I just did my fitness testing. I'm at 95% of my best test ever. So uh, wow. I'm basically right where I where I need to be. And it's only May. And so I've got basically a whole you know half year of training before I my competition start up. And um, it's it's a it would be a dream come true. Um, I'm set myself up to to be successful in that in that place. And um, I'm I'm thankful I have the experience, you know, that I that I've had because I, I know what I'm getting myself into <laughs> with this next Olympics. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very much aware that it, it very well could be my last Olympic games as well. So, you know, wanting to just enjoy the process more so than ever and, and savor those experiences. Um, and I, I think I have a pretty good shot at both making the team. And, uh, if I, if I make it there, I'm, I'm going to go for it. You see me going for it. Yeah, definitely. Well, we look forward to seeing that happen, Colin. You mentioned your experience. Uh, just before we kind of wrap this interview up, but why don't you just tell us a, a bit more about the, the Kelly Clark Foundation? I started the Kelly Clark Foundation in 2010, um, and I basically just got to a point in my career where, um, you know, I've been very successful, and and I knew I was going to leave, you know, a string of great competition results behind, but I just kind of started looking and was like, you know, is that the only thing that I'm going to do? Um, with my snowboarding is leave good competition results. Uh, I, I just wanted it to be more than that. I wanted to, to leave a, a culture and a sport that was better because I was part of it. And I thought, you know, one thing I can do is, is create opportunity for people who can't afford to get out on the hill. So we fund, um, high level competitive athletes 
and um, pay pay for part of their coaching um, to to make the jump from amateur to pro that they need, and also entry level um, kind of underserved youth who who would never have an opportunity. You know, a lot of kids who have never even seen snow. Um, we get those kids out on the hill as well. So just kind of creating access to the sport of snowboarding and supporting people in that, I think is, is one of the things that um, I've been kind of focusing my efforts out at. And I I just want to, you know, build something um, bigger than me and be relevant. uh, You know, when I no longer uh, will will be competing anymore. So I just wanted to build something bigger something that outlasts my ability to compete and to perform. Um, And so that's been, really amazing. And then also, um, kind of within those, uh, in that world, I actually just, uh, finished up my first book. So I'm going to be releasing that on, on November 1st and it's called inspired. Um, and it's the pursuit of progress. Um, as you can see, that's a big theme, Mm. um, after talking to me, um, that I'm passionate about. And it's not an autobiography. It's a book on motivation, helping people hit their potential, Um, you know, talking about a lot of things we talked about in the interview today, figuring out how to navigate themselves well in a performance culture, figure out how to develop a sense of purpose and identity outside of, of what you do and how to navigate fear, how to be authentic, um, and really how to measure success in a healthy way. Um, if you don't know anything about snowboarding, you're going to get a lot out of this book. Hmm. Um, it's, it's really, uh, I feel like approachable and relatable to all walks of life and it would apply pretty much anywhere. So that's that's been a huge a um, uh, huge project for me that I, I've really enjoyed and uh, I found you know I was really able to let people in to my process more so than ever and I, I really enjoyed that it'll be really cool to see where it goes. Brilliant! I can't wait to read it and when it comes out, of course, we'll share it on all of our social media channels and everything like that. Just before you go, Kelly, why don't you just remind us where we can find you online through a website and, and some of your social media channels, please? So I've got kellyclarkfoundation.org, um, and you can kind of get to all my social media channels via there. I'm the Kelly Clark on Instagram, Kelly Clark FDN on Twitter, um, and Kelly Clark um, on Facebook. Wonderful. I've really enjoyed speaking to you, Kelly. I'm go- when I think of you, I'm going to think of the word opportunity. I think I think that's what I've definitely uh, learned from this program, uh, along with many other things. Thank you so much for being on the show today, and thank you for being the best in the world. Thank you so much. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. I'm excited to read Kelly's book when it comes out. Go and check it out when it comes out in November. Of course, if you want to learn more from snowboarders, we've actually done two snowboarders in the past. Before Kelly Clark, the Olympic champion in the halfpipe was Nicola Toss. Nicola was on the show only a few episodes back. Go back and listen to that. Also, quite a while ago, I think around about episode 30. Don't quote me on that. Just look around the area, maybe 30, 31, 32. We spoke to Gretchen Blyler, multiple X Games winner. Also a super pipe world champion and an Olympic silver medalist. Really good conversation with her. We talk a lot about conservation as a conversation. Very similar words there. That was terrible. But never mind. Continue. It's a much better chat than my rhyming is. That conversation with Gretchen Blyler. Go back and listen to that. 
Also, if you're interested in winter sports, we've spoken to Eve Muirhead, who, of course, is a curler from Scotland. We've also spoken to Chad Hedrick, the speed skater. We've got more winter Olympians coming up on the program in future episodes, so stay tuned to the Facebook page, Best in the World with Richard Parr, for all of those updates. And, of course, even if you're not interested in winter sports, we've had some fantastic outdoor summer olympic sports that's what i mean the summer olympics outdoor olympics they do it outdoor in the winters anyway I'm, I'm losing the plot today but yes we've had some summer olympics guests on the program such as our last episode with the olympic shot put champion michelle carter we've also spoken to jeff henderson who won the long jump in rio and many many more great athletes go back and listen to them on itunes where you can, of course, subscribe to this program. And also, if you just get a moment, a minute of your time, I'd love it if you give us a rating and review. It actually really matters a lot to this program. So if you can just spend those 30 seconds, I would really appreciate it. All right, that's it for this week's episode. I hope you have a wonderful week. And we'll be back next Thursday with the best in the world with Richard Parr. Goodbye for now. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr.